to another edition of Sad Times. I thought I would say it that way this time because then you hear the name of the podcast, Sad Times, pops at you. My name's Kevin. I'm your host. So happy you could join us. If you have listened before, so happy to have you back. Keep on coming back. There are some wonderful stories each and every week. Uh, We're about to get to another one. If you've never been here before, welcome. Let me give you a quick primer on Sad Times. Sad Times is a show in where each week we have a guest on, and that guest talks about times that they were sad, upset, angry, traumatic events that they went through, mental health struggles they've gone through. Uh, and the, the goal of this is not to solve the problem, diagnose the problem, nor is it to judge the problem or, or the story. It's just to allow the story to be told so that you listening at home or uh, you know doing the dishes, whatever you may be doing, can feel a little bit less alone. At Sad Times, we believe that difficult times are universal, but they're not universally told. And so our goal is to allow these stories to be told so that more people can hear these and feel a little less alone, and as we'll talk about a little bit later, become a little bit more resilient. So that's what Sad Times is. We do have a sweet website. It's www.sadtimespodcast.com, and there you can get all of our episodes. You can register to be a guest. We can let you know how that works. Uh, There's a blog. We have a guest blog series. So go check that out. Listen to the episodes, please. And, um, you know, find us on Facebook. We're the Sad Times Group and all that good stuff. And before we get to our wonderful guest, we do, of course, have to pay the bills around here. So uh, let's get to the sponsor. This one was really eager and reached out to us, so I'm, I'm happy to have the sponsor. So today's episode of Sad Times is brought to you by that time my sister, who is not a doctor, thought the Manhattan Project had something to do with aliens. I don't even know where to start with this one, except in a history book. Or any book for that matter. It's clear my sister needs to listen to a lot more Hysteria 51, as we all should. That's Hysteria 51 podcast. That's the time my sister, who is not a doctor, thought the Manhattan Project had something to do with aliens. Hey, at least she got the universe right. All right. Yeah, good sponsor. Try to get them back. Wade, put them down. Cool. Thank you. All right, let's get to today's wonderful, kind, and generous guest. Her name is Lisa. Lisa, how's it going? Not so bad. Thank you. Good. Glad to hear it. Now, where are you uh, recording from today? Pretty much right smack in the middle of Canada. Right. So oh, okay. Old, if you're old school like me and you remember what an atlas is, if you open up the atlas, we're pretty much in the crack. <laughs> so you're coming to us from the crack of Canada. Uh, Almost. And I can see out a window and I don't, and I'm I'm going to be very um very cliche here. I don't see any snow. Is it is it not cool there, or cold? Is oh, it co- it's cold, but no yeah. snow. Yeah, this is this is uh thanks to to Zoom and the technologies that Zoom provides us with false background. Is that a false background? It is. It's pretty dang good, isn't That's it? That's the best false background I've ever seen. We were recording with somebody else, and their their poor head kept disappearing into the false background. So well, unless I'm flipping cartwheels on on this side, it's not too bad that way. <laughs> okay. And you grew up in Canada, I assume? I did. Moved around a lot as a kid, but uh, landed up here in the middle of, of Canada again. Is everybody as nice as, as they are portrayed to be? Parts of us are. Parts <laughs> of us, not so much. Oh, so so you're telling me that you're like normal human beings? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, prairie people, like where I'm from. 
and the Maritimers, we've got the the best reputation for being the nicest. So nice. If you ever come, come to the middle, come to the crack, come. or or come to the East Coast. <laughs> if you take anything away from this, it's come to the middle, come to the crack of Canada. If you're ever going to go to Canada, yeah, Equal I see. Brent it. Brent is pulling up his travel agent website right now. And you reached out to us at Sad Times a little while ago. We're recording now. We're getting up on mid-January. I can't believe that. But that's when we're recording right now, hence my comment about the lack of snow. But you had said to me about 23 years ago, you started to have some mental health struggles. So why don't we start there? And why don't you take us through that and what was going on in your life and what started to occur? Sure. Well, that was exactly the time that my second child was born. So I had a two-year-old little girl at home and a brand new little boy. And uh, I just didn't think I was functioning properly, but honestly, too scared to speak up and say anything. You know, who wants to admit that they're not mumming right or Mm. that they have it wrong? Uh, But at one of my son's checkups, I finally worked up the bravery to say to my family physician, um, is it normal that you want to gas up the car and drive far, far, far away without the children and not come back? And that's when he pulled up his little rolly chair and was just so kind and compassionate. And we started to have the talk. And I realized that I was having some serious postpartum issues. I love to hear that he was kind and compassionate. I it's just always so good to hear because you hear kind of difficult stories from people who, who come out with these type of things and say, Hey, I'm struggling with this. And the reception is not kind or compassionate. So kudos to, to that doctor for coming out and being kind, receptive and compassionate and helping you see that now. So you did not suffer from postpartum that you know of from when you had your daughter. Is that correct? Right. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think a being a mom, I think every pregnancy, every every child is different. Mm. But I also think having a toddler at home and a brand new little person, you know, uh and being up all night long with a newborn and then your 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 2-year-old waking you up at 6, "Hey, mommy, you know, how's yeah. the you know, you just there was no rest and I was I actually tore up pictures of myself. After my, I was so skinny and it looked like someone had taken black magic marker around my eyes. I looked like something the the dog had dragged in. And that was truly reflective of what was going on inside of me. So a lot of it too has to, has to do with the lack of sleep then. Um, Mm -hmm. I I imagine, right? Uh, We, we had a a former guest on here. Her name is, uh, and she had, she had come on and she had postpartum and she talked a lot about how there's a reason sleep deprivation is a form of torture. hundred percent. Uh, and, and I, I love that you brought up that it is different because of course it's different for, for every mom, even every mom who goes through postpartum depression, it's, it's going to be different for everybody, but that does not make your experience, uh, if anybody out there is listening, is, um, you know, struggling with that, that does not make your experience any weirder or stranger or anything else than anybody else. Um, so you, I know that, uh, did you go to a therapist? Did you end up on medication? What were the next steps, uh, when you, when you started speaking with the doctor? 
Well, and like I say, he's very kind and compassionate. And, uh, you know, he gave me some options. He said, this is what we tend to do with folks who are struggling. And he was never a pushy doctor, nor was he a very prescription happy guy. That wasn't his, you know, his go-to for everything. But he said, like, what do you think? What what would you like to try? Because I think we really need to do something. And uh, I'm, I've always been open, like whatever you need at the time, like there's, there's no shame in taking medication. I wasn't hung up on that. And I said, well, you know, like, let, let's try something here. And I mean, anybody who's listening, who's, who's had to go on medication for mental health issues, unfortunately, one of the biggest problems is you don't know if this dang pill is going to work for mm. six weeks, mm-hmm. eight weeks or more. Right. Anyway, um, I'm one of those weird oddball people uh, I've learned over the years who seems to have adverse reactions to everything. And unfortunately, depression medication was, you know, not an exception at all. And I went through a couple of different meds. And I think the third one that I tried, it actually caused me to, to lose consciousness. And the worst part about it is that I was up in the middle of the night by myself trying to nurse my son. My husband was sleeping. My two-year-old was sleeping. And I could feel, if anybody's passed out before, I could feel that that black circle closing in. I could feel myself losing consciousness. And I shouted out. And thankfully, my husband heard me and came into the nursery as I was folding over onto my infant son. Oh, my and could have suffocated him. Um, but thankfully, that didn't happen. My husband retrieved him, put him in his crib. Baby was fine. He, uh, my husband laid me out on the floor. He had just recertified his his CPR at the hospital, so he he knew what to do. And I don't know how long I was out, and that doesn't matter. But um, when I came to, we both looked at each other. My husband's a pharmacist by trade, and and we both looked at each other and said, I, I don't think we're going to take that anymore. Yeah. And uh quickly discontinued that, but I I knew that I still needed to do something. You know, just because the medication was was not working did not mean that I was willing to accept this depressive state because frankly it scared me. Um, I didn't have any thoughts of harming myself, but in my mind's eye, in my thoughts, I could picture myself hurting my baby. That's a, I didn't have plans to do so, but that's just how I was feeling. So I knew I needed to do something. And uh, I, I turned, I know it sounds so cliche, but I really turned towards exercise and diet. That was the only thing that I felt that I could control. Um, and I just, I really made it a priority. We went and bought a a cheaperoni weight bench at Canadian Tire. It would be, I don't even know what equivalent to in, in American, but like, let's say Walmart. Okay. Really? Yeah. Let's say Walmart. So like just the basic, basic stuff. And when my husband would come home for from work, we'd have dinner and then it was, I would get 30 minutes. Because that's all really you can afford as a, you know, with these two little people in your house, but right. I made it a priority and it, it moved the needle in more than one way. First of all, um, it really helped my mental health. It helped me sleep better. The problem mm-hmm. was, and I mean, I don't mean to, to lay blame. You can't blame a baby, but um, I came home 
with my daughter, my firstborn, she was an anomaly. She slept through the night from the moment we brought her home. So I thought, wow, all babies <laughs> did this. You put them in the crib. They slept for 12 hours. You fed them. You put them back to bed. They slept another six. Like, And then my son came along. I got a real baby, number two. <laughs> and, you know, he was up. Oh, gosh. I lost count numerous times. Numerous times. Um but anyway, when after I would get up with him, I would fall asleep when I was exercising. Yeah. And then of that, you know, just when I was exercising, then I would I would feel like I wanted to eat better, drink more water, and it just seemed to be kind of this positive biofeedback circle if you will. Yeah, and you said that that also helped lead you to other healthy healthier, excuse me, healthier coping skills. Um and you actually went on to become a health coach. Is that right? I did. Yeah. I, well, and I did another thing too. And I was really lucky and fortunate in the sense that I could cut my hours back. So I really was just working part time for most of my career so that I could kind of balance out home life and work life. So that was one thing. But then I realized just how much. A healthy lifestyle and just a few changes in our lives can help our mental health. So yes, I did get certified as a as a health coach and was working with women, and life was good. You know, like yeah. life was life was good. You know, we I had better balance. I felt more in control of my emotions. Um, not to go down another bunny hole, but I think you and I had spoken. I I ended up with some big anxiety issues too as my kids got older. Yeah. Um, there was a period of time in my life when I was literally afraid to go to sleep at night because I, that, that feeling of drifting off, which is normal, right? Mm -hmm. We all have it. That feeling of going to sleep. I had somehow convinced myself that that feeling was me dying and that when I would lose consciousness to go to sleep, I was actually going to die. So how did you, that is such a, a terrifying feeling. And again, it, it how did you deal with that? Oh, I didn't for a long time. I, I avoided sleep. Um, I, I, it was awful. It was awful. Did you feel like you um, could talk to anybody about it? No. Postpartum, I felt like, because it had a name, mm. because other people had talked about it before me. I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure if I told my parents about the postpartum. Um, there are a few token mom friends. I did. But the anxiety, I'm not sure that anyone other than my husband knew about that yeah. for a long time. Did you yeah. have a lot of shame around it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What's, what is wrong with me? Yeah. Isn't it interesting, too? And I, I've had that shame over many of many anxious, you know, anxiety that I've had. And then if you are able to, remove yourself from thinking that way or you're in a less emotional you're in a, a better place then you realize oh wait this is a very normal thing that happens to people unfortunately it has an abnormal feeling uh which is really the problem what i say about anxiety is that it tricks you every time because ah. you think okay cool oh oh no well that no i don't think this is anxiety this time i'm gonna ooh, i'm gonna get my defenses up and then you're like ah got me again he's like um like some neighbor on a bad sitcom who just comes over and messes everything up and leaves, you know? Uh, and didn't you, you also uh, had 
couple years after your son was born, maybe three or four years, you dropped him off at preschool and you went right to the ER, right? You, you were having some problems? Major panic attacks. So at night I was facing these fears of dying. And in the day, and again, I relate this all back to lack of sleep, you know, because at this time I'm fighting sleep. Even when sleep wanted to come, I was fighting it because I was afraid. And then during the day, I had zero coping skills at all. And kids are hard. Mm. You know, I love my kids, but they're, they are really hard little people. And when you're not sleeping, I don't know about all your listeners or yourself. I can't, I'm a hot mess. I'm I terrible. can't handle yeah. anything if I'm not sleeping. And, you know, it was just this vicious cycle of, you know, being afraid of going to sleep, afraid of dying. And then, oh my God, if I die, my kids aren't going to have a mother. And, and, you know, even somewhat rational fears became very irrational. And uh, yeah, so there was a, there was a day I remember distinctly, even though it was a long time ago, dropping him off at preschool and uh, jumping back in my little minivan and driving myself to the hospital. And did they, they basically ran a test or what they do, I, I don't know. And did they just tell you it was a panic attack or, or how did they, what was their response? Not so many words. Um, again, I was very fortunate that uh, the ER attendant was compassionate, you know, took my concerns to heart, wasn't poo-pooing me or making me feel bad for showing up there. I was a young woman, I guess at that age, probably early 30s you know, could have easily said, oh, ma'am, you know, go home and get some sleep. But they they ran all the tests and gave me the results. And, and of course, I felt like a dummy because, you know, they hook me all up to the leads. They get the heart monitors going. They do all the things. And by the time that happens, my heart rate is back to normal. Right. Prior to going there. Now, I, I was an athlete growing up and had, you know, done a lot of physical, hard physical training and was used to an elevated heart rate during hard sessions. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, and that's why I went to the ER, because I thought, man, even when I was training, my heart never went this fast. It never worked this hard. Surely to God, this is a, this is a cardiac event. Um, but the, the results came back, and they were, of course, all normal. But mm -hmm. he said, you know what? Sometimes our scans are all of these things miss things. So let's do the appropriate workup. Let's do all the tests. Let's do all the stress tests. Let's do all the things, uh, which I did. And, you know, I, and then when everything at that point came back normal, that's when the sit down about, okay, let's explore this more. And let's, you know, are you open to seeing a therapist, a counselor, so on, so that we can dig deeper into this? And of course I was. Yeah. But the discussion didn't really come up until months later, till all this workup was done. Oh, so it, it, the workup was was that over like many visits type of thing, or yeah, okay, yeah, there were a number. Mm -hmm. And so you did start seeing a therapist then, and um, were they able to your therapist like? Did you get to the root of why you might have had anxiety or how? What was the approach that you guys took in in kind of attacking it? That's, uh, that's a good question. I'm I'm down. very pro therapy. Right. I am yes. very pro therapy. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm also a big believer that 
no matter how wonderful your therapist is, we still have to do the work, right? right. And I kind of came to my own conclusion on my own. And that was, I played this kind of weird mind game with myself. I also, and this is really embarrassing to say, but I also had this unfounded fear of vomiting. If we went to a theater and we were like stuck in the middle of a row or somewhere that, you know, the first thought that would always go through my mind is, oh my God, what if I'm sick? And I never have been. I have never been in a situation like that where I have been. Where that fear came from, I have no idea. But I played this game with myself. What's the worst thing that could happen? Mm-hmm. Is this the end of the world? Like, for example, if I'm laying on the bathroom floor because I am being physically ill, is the world going to end? Probably not. Right. You know, so 99 times out of 100, I could ask myself that. Is this the end of the world? Is the world going to end? And the answer was usually no. And then it was like, okay, okay, I can do this. I can do this panic attack. I can, I can, I can handle this. It's a, it's a good coping mechanism that kind of gives you instant perspective in a sense. If you take it to the logical, natural end, the worst for all of us, you know, the end of the world, you can say, oh, okay, this is just a panic attack. This, this will pass just like everything else passes. But man, as somebody who has suffered from a, a number, a number of panic attacks, when you're in the middle of it, it is very, 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 very hard to realize that one, that it will end, two, that it's not real. I mean, it is the the realest thing in the world. That's that's why they work so well. Work, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Right. And you had said around this time in your life, I mean, fear was the word that you would use to kind of describe this period of your life. You were just you, you were consumed in a sense by fear. Absolutely. Yep. I was afraid of dying. I was afraid of leaving my children alone. I was afraid of my children dying. I was, you know, it was just this constant state of fear. And how did you, so just through therapy and, and as you said, doing the work yourself with the mm-hmm. therapist, you were able to kind of not solve again, cause you're, we're not solving anything. These are things to be managed and, and understood, but you, you were given the tools and worked with those tools to help deal with that anxiety. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. And I think along the way and, and still, you know, after all these years, I feel like I'm always tweaking my journey. I'm always finding a new tool. I'm always trying something new, like hot yoga or journaling or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And just constantly really working on my well-being. Yeah, I, I love that you said that, that you're always finding something new that will help because, you know, it. we want, uh, I'll say I, I want whenever I figure out a mental health issue or I'm able to get past something, I want it to be done and over with and I want the rules to be that way. But it never is because it's an evolving thing that has to be managed. And so hearing from somebody who has done the work that, hey, yeah, um, it's going to come back. It'll come back maybe in another form. And you know what? When I do, I'm going to work then and I'm going to come up with these new tools now. And I, I think that's a really important thing to share for anybody who's on a mental health journey because uh, that it can really set you up for failure if you're like, well, got that solved. I, you know, 
and and knowing that it's going to be a continued process and new tools will present themselves, it, it gives an optimism and a hope that I think maybe when you think you're going to have a solve for everything, it, it doesn't have enough. It, 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 the optimism and hope doesn't have as much of a place to live there. True. Very yeah. true. So you got through this very difficult time. I, I I think it's fair to say a lot of people go through these periods in their life, and this is kind of what we were talking about, at, or what I was talking about at the beginning of the show. Like People go through this, but as you just said, you only talked to your husband about it. You didn't feel comfortable talking to anybody else. And so that you're able to come on here and tell that story um, is really great. And I know that people go through this all the time, and they think, "Why? what is wrong with me? There's something wrong with me. Uh, I'm the only one who feels X, Y, or Z. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think the more that we can all share and just be, you know, vulnerable and real, the more it's, we're making it okay for other people to say, oh man, like me too. Thank you for saying that because now I feel like I can say that. Right. It, it, does small small obliterations of shame, shame uh, of feeling this mental health thing, shame of having to take, if you take medication, you know, things like that. Um, it's important to know there is no shame around those things. And you're right. Uh, I think we say around here, stories are the great healing power of humankind. The more we hear, the more we heal. And- Couldn't uh, agree more. Yeah. Well, uh, so you- you had this difficult, you had the two young kids and then they start to grow up and, um, you know, about, I think your son, about 15 years later after your son was born, I think it, um, you, uh, you had a knock on the door one night. Uh, tell us about that and, and what, what was going on? Well, without getting into all the details, uh, at the time my daughter was 17 years old, my son was 15 years old. And uh, normal, unnormal, I don't know. Teenagers are just a whole new breed, really. <laughs> right. Uh, but my, fif- my 15-year-old son then uh, was, uh, to put it nicely, he was a bit of a troublemaker. Okay. And, you know, was doing all the things that, that you tell your kids not to do. Like, all the things. Everybody, it's like he had a list. He was just checking them all oh. off. I swear, <laughs> how can I make my parents more crazy? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we we got the knock on the door um, that every parent fears. But at the moment, I had a, you know, you open up the door and in walks a, a uniformed police officer and a lady in black, who I now know to be a coroner. At the time, I mean, I just saw the officer, right? Like, and my mind immediately went to my son. What did that little bugger do now? Uh-huh. Like, I really thought they were there to tell us that he had done something really bad. Right. And But at the same time, he was the one that was home in the basement in his room. Uh, what I could not see coming, and yet my husband said he knew immediately when he opened, opened the door. Um. Just like they say in the movies, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Bame, I regret to inform you that your daughter Katie was killed in a head-on collision. She died at the scene. So that uh, that unraveled pretty much all the work and all the quote-unquote healing that I had done with my mental health 
you know, for the the previous number of years and uh, life presented the ultimate wallop. Yeah, I, I cannot imagine to hear that and to experience that news for you and your husband. And I think you had said to me when we were talking before that your life instantly becomes defined as before and after. Uh, that before yeah. that moment and after. So how did you react? How did your husband react? Like how, I, I there's no right or wrong way. I, I just, how, how you call it a wallop and that's underselling it. Of course. How did you react when you heard that? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, oddly enough, it's a, it's a night that my husband and I do talk about from time to time, but in, in very different ways. Like he will remember things that happen. I thought my daughter was going to pick up her boyfriend and we're going to do whatever, going somewhere together. So when the officer came, I kept saying, she was alone. She was alone. She was alone. I thought, you know, um, so the uh, officer wanted to, given the nature of the accident, my daughter's car left uh, the road across the ditch and actually hit a semi, not quite head on, but almost. They had to rule out suicide. That was just part of their their investigation. So in you know, part of that was to talk to the boyfriend who was not in the car with her and you know, talk about her state of mind and and all of these kinds of things. My husband re- remembers trying to dial the boyfriend's number. And actually not being able to hold the phone because he was shaking so badly. Um, I remember that night sitting on the on the couch with my son on one side, my husband on the other, and shaking so badly that I was I felt like almost an out-of-body experience. Oddly enough, the entire two hours that the officer and the coroner were at our house, I didn't cry. I didn't cry. My husband didn't cry. My son was, I think we were all just beyond in shock. Like this, this, this isn't happening to us. Um, And then after that, like, it's just, it's amazing to me, and, and we talked about this before, you know, after that night going forward, how three people who can live in one house, you know, a husband, a wife, who are on the same page when it comes to parenting and finances and pretty much everything else in life can grieve completely different. And right. then you've got the wild, well, I shouldn't call him the wild child. He's just... <laughs> As a disclaimer, he's 23 years old now. He's a rock star. He's got a great career. He bought his own house. Like he's he's got it wow. together. But good for him. Yeah, he he's really got it together. But um, you know, at the time, 15 years old, and we talk about the tools in our tool belt. Well, 15 year old boys, I don't think have any tools in their tool belt. Well, I take that back. He had ma- he had anger, he had rage, and unfortunately, he had pot. Um, those those were in his yeah. And, those, okay, yeah. so he had three tools in his tool belt, which are not going to really help. No, fifteen, not at all. Yeah, not at all. 
Uh, but yeah, the three of us, you know, essentially coexisted under this roof um, as best we could for a long time, just each of us struggling, like doggy paddling to keep our heads above the water, you know, quote unquote, trying to support one another, which is actually a bit of a joke. Because when you're drowning yourself, I don't know how you save anybody else from drowning. Yeah. Um, but we were, we were like, you know, the definition of dysfunctional and yet functional for grief. It was, it was a hot mess. So for you, your own specific, you know, grief journey, you, what, what did you do, you know, after the constable and the, the, the um, coroner left? You know, what What did it look like for you? How did you start to tackle this grief? Or how did you start to deal with the situation, for lack of a better term? Well, I guess the short version is that because my son was, like I say, he was he was making some really bad decisions at that point in his life. And fear came creeping back, surprise, surprise. And I was uh, paranoid, like frightened beyond words that I would could, could potentially lose another child, um, you know, because at that point in time, he was bulletproof. You know, this will, would never happen to me. Um, I was really afraid of losing another kid. So my mindset, I even remember the officer sitting across from us, you know, and it was like his words started fading away and I was already thinking, holy man, I have got to hold this little family together. I will not lose another child. And I remember thinking, you know, this is going to go one of two ways with my other kid. This is either going to be the kick in the pants that he needs to straighten himself out or it's going to get really bad. So I kind of went into like super mom mode. I don't okay. know what you call it. And I just kind of imagined myself just like holding on for dear life, my husband on one side, my my son on the other, and that I would I was not going to let this family fall apart. And then and, I, oh, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say, um, on one hand, it served me well because it was almost it was almost a distraction. Right. Like I almost felt like I needed to take my grief and just put it over here for a little while, even though it was always right here. Um, but in some ways, it didn't serve me well either because I did not allow myself to fully grieve initially because I was afraid that I would never get my, my shit together. That, that so would be it. You were afraid. Are you saying, let me make sure I understand. You were afraid to even approach your grief because you were afraid it would break like basically you would lose it uh-huh and that yeah. i would never be able to be the support that you know my son and my husband needed i put i kind of put that on my own shoulders and i know that you had said like and you you, you just said it now you you have your husband in in the metaphor you have your husband in one arm your your son in the other and you're just hugging him for dear life and mm -hmm. but you ended I think you said you ended up squeezing the life out of them because you were holding them so tight because that was the way that it was manifesting for you. What was the reaction to, to that from your husband and your son? Well, I mean, from a 15 year old boy's 
perspective, you can imagine, like my house was not very happy. My house wasn't the fun house to be at anymore. Um, you know, I, I tried to keep it together somewhat, but he didn't want to be home. So he was out with his friends and his very helpful friends, you know, uh, you know, were the ones saying, you know, Hey man, you know, let's, let's smoke some pot and take the edge off. And, you know, so like you say, I, I kind of squeezed him right out of my arms Right. So that was that. My husband, um, oh boy, that's a big one. I needed to talk. I needed to do. I needed to, I, I mean, I was writing Katie's obituary. I don't know. What was that? 48 hours after maybe uh, writing her obituary. And I so much wanted to add in there a scholarship because my daughter had earned an entrance scholarship into nursing six days prior to her accident. So awesome. that was fresh. And I wanted to, I wanted to offer a scholarship. And, you know, so as I'm writing this, I'm, I'm yelling, you know, from the office to my husband in the other room, Hey, you know, can we ball? And, and my husband's like, Lisa, like, Maybe in a few months, we just, we, we can't do this right now. And I mean, not to sound crass or anything, but to bury a child, bury anybody is not an inexpensive venture. He said, we just don't have the money to do that right now. And uh, anyway, we did. Because <laughs> as I'm writing the obituary, his boss called him. And said, we both work in healthcare. We both uh, work in oncology. We both work, work with a lot of doctors. My, my husband more intimately than I do. He's a pharmacist and works very closely with the docs. The, the docs were like, not right. People don't know what to do when people die. The docs right. were, were handing one of his coworkers like money, money. So she said, you guys better plan a holiday or something because I don't know what to do with this money. And, uh, so Daryl, my husband walked in the office and he said, you can put the scholarship in the obituary. We've got wow. the funds. Yeah. Yeah. It, it came together beautifully, but I was the doer. I needed to do those things. Right. I need, and I call them Katie projects. I always have to have some kind of a Katie project on the go. My husband, on the other hand, um, I would literally get the hand from him. Like, like to talk to the hand, like, I can't do it right now. I can't. I can't talk right now. I can't talk right now. And we, you know, if you uh, would have asked me at the six-month mark if we were going to make it, like our marriage would make it, I would have said, no, not going to make it. Mm. But we did find words to say to one another, and those words were very simple. And we both would say, I love you. I'm sorry I can't be the person to support you right now, but I love you. And, and you know, as insignificant as those sound, they were enough for us to understand each other. I'm, I'm doing my grief over here and you're doing your grief over there. And I guess we're going to figure this out. Man, and uh, it's another thing, again, about grief I think there's, we all think we know what grief is, but it is a very personal thing. And um, to be able to get to what you said, very simple language, but very 
loving, very supportive language, even when saying that I'm not going to be able to support you right now. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I imagine I, if anything, if I stub my toe, I want to talk to somebody about it for like an hour and a half, right? Cause that's how I deal with things. And I cannot imagine how difficult it would have been for you and your grief to say, I need to talk about this or, Hey, we need to do X, Y, or Z, uh, for these projects. And your, and your husband just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And th- that, even that tension there is enough. It's just overwhelming even to think about. I'm so happy to hear, um, that you guys were able to find a way to communicate with each other, even in, in ways that said, I can't support you right now, but I love you. Right. That's, that's a really beautiful thing. I think. Um, and you know, around this time too, you had told me that you, you and your husband enjoyed traveling and and you would enjoy a glass of wine when you traveled, that type of thing. And you had a wine rack at your house and it was around this time that you, you were having some suicidal ideation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's anybody who's been in that situation, it's a tough thing to explain because your rational brain thinks one way, you know, if think back to the Flintstones when Fred had the angel on, on one shoulder and the devil yeah. on the other, and they're kind of arguing. Yep. That's almost, almost, and I, I don't mean to make light of this, you know, if somebody's suffering with that, but that's almost what it reminded me of where the, you know, these two parts of my brain were just arguing, but what happened? I feel like I bottomed out at that, I don't know, six, seven, eight month mark. I was alone at home a lot. I was very fortunate that I'd been working in my position at the hospital forever and really didn't take a lot of sick time. So I had I ended up taking 10 months of work off. Like I thought, really, if there's no other time in my life that, you know, I might need this, this is the best time to take it. And that was great because I was able to support my husband and my son in a lot of ways, but it left me on my own a lot. And one day I really started thinking that I could pretty easily take my life. Um, you know, there nobody was questioning me, no physician was questioning me about taking sleeping pills, right? Like we've talked about what a, what a mess somebody can be without sleep. So I had sleeping pills. And then I remember really staring at my wine rack thinking huh, there's a lot there. But it was so bizarre that I kept getting hung up on the details. And I guess, thankfully, you know, the rational part of my brain was what prevented me from doing anything. And because I kept getting hung up on, well, do you take the sleeping pills first to make sure that they all get in there? Or do you open the, like, start drinking the wine first? You know, anyway, so I would, and it just, get to this stuck point and I would get stuck. So I would quit thinking about it. Right. It was almost like a dead end. So I'd quit thinking about it. And this went on for quite some time. And, you know, in this thinking and in this trying to solve this big question that I had, I remember, you know, just kind of looking around the room and, and my eyes landed on my daughter's picture at one point. And I could almost hear her screaming at me through the photo, you know, just giving me hell, really. Like, come on, mom. 
And then, you know, oh, oh, and then my eyes landing on a picture of my son. And I just think, I just thought to myself, what chance does that kid ever have of getting his feet back under him if I do this? And it was just like a huge snap back to reality. And and that was the last time I thought about it. But having said that, I didn't share that dirty little secret for four years. To anybody? Not a soul. In fact, my husband, um, I have been speaking on stages about mental health, about grief and all this kind of thing. And it was just the right audience that I thought, this is this is this is a time when I could share that story that this would be helpful, right? Because there's sometimes that that story isn't helpful. But my husband overheard me practicing that speech. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, and he'd never he didn't have a clue. Wow. And I and when he when he gently asked me about it, I said. After so much time went by, I didn't know how to tell you. I didn't know how to bring it up. And uh, you and you said too that a time that you looked and you were you were considering it, then you saw a picture of your daughter. Something else that you told me that was really powerful too is you you've come to always imagine your daughter watching from the other side, and you just want to make her proud. Um. Tell tell us a little bit about your daughter and kind of what what she like how she would the pep talk in your mind that you would get from her maybe when when you were feeling kind of down. Well, keep in mind that she was seventeen. She was a diva. She was saucy. She was spicy. <laughs> she was sassy. Yeah, uh, she really didn't have a filter. Um, and you know, as much as that was a frustrating thing when she was uh, alive and well, I I so appreciate that in her now. And I, but I could literally, literally see her standing over. Like if let's say I was having one of those rotten, stinky, griefy days where you're literally laying on the floor, I could literally picture her hands on hips, standing over top of me. You know, kind of giving me a gentle kick in the butt, just like, "Mom, this is not how it's supposed to be." It's not how it's supposed to be. And uh, I mean, this is another talk for another day, but I do feel her near me all the time. Like there is no doubt in my mind that there is more to quote unquote life than this human existence. Um, So I, I just, I feel her around me and I just, I feel that she wants me to carry on and that she's frankly kind of disappointed on 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 the days or at the times when I am not doing so well and I don't feel her near me when I am so low. Mm. Wow. Um and you also said that about this grief that we're talking about, you had a really apt analogy that you you compared it to a suitcase. Tell us about that. Yeah. So my a little bit of a backstory. My daughter was a competitive dancer for most of her life. She actually danced uh, on occasion with the Russian ballet. She auditioned wow. for the big ballet school here in, in Canada. Um, so I sat through a lot of dance competitions and a lot of dance practices and all of that. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm going to say about two months after we lost her, I kept having this recurring image, like not a dream, like a, a, a lucid 
sitting there thinking about it, image of these dancers with these suitcases, like beat up, horrible suitcases. And I, I just remember thinking, what is happening? Pulling out my laptop, and it's like this story poured out of me, a short story. And ultimately, this short story was a man coming to my door who delivered this horrific suitcase. It was ugly. It was black. It was beaten up, and it was heavy, and just plopped it in my hand, said goodbye, and left. And, you know, over the course of days and weeks, I had to lug this thing around with me and people felt sorry for me and they didn't know why I had to carry it. And I tried to unzip it and peek inside and it was still dark and it was awful and scary. And then one day I eventually was brave enough to open up this whole suitcase, open it up, and it's actually filled with love and beautiful memories. And anyway, this was an analogy of what grief is. Yeah. And I do believe that grief is ugly and awful and horrible. But I also know for a fact that we grieve because we love. We don't grieve anything that we don't love. Whether it's a job we lost that we loved, whether it's a pet we lost, whether it's you know, our independence, whether it's our health that we lose, we love these things, right? So we grieve them. And that's what makes them so difficult. Wow. Yes, that is very apt and and very well said. Thank you for that. Um, and you said that you're, so you're, we're going back to when it's the three of you, right? And you're kind of, as you said, one of the first thoughts you had is I got to hold this family together. You guys took a lot of um, vacations, I believe afterwards to try to, uh, you know, just stick together as a unit and everything. Tell us about the time when you um, were walking on the beach on one of these, these vacations and, and what happened. Yeah. We took a lot of uh, holidays um, just because as cl- as weird as it sounds, I feel felt like that we really needed to learn how to be a family of three mm. when we'd always been a family of four. Um and some holidays were big and some days were small, but there was one time we were out in Nanaimo, BC, British Columbia, beautiful, beautiful province. And we had gone on a big hike together. And it was one of these hikes where you didn't really know where you were going or where the hike was going to end up, but we kind of come busting out of the trees. And here we are on this picturesque beach, like just gorgeous. And it was a beautiful summer day. And my husband and son were up ahead on the shoreline, and I was kind of walking along slowly, kind of one foot in the in the, the ocean and one water one on the beach, and just really relishing in the moment. And I had forest on the left side and this gorgeous ocean on the right. And the sun was, you know, just that perfect temperature when it felt like a warm blanket on your skin. And I remember tipping my my face up towards the sun and just drinking it in and actually smiling. And feeling happy for a moment. And it was almost like I could hear the, the, the car tires screech. And, you know, my, my subconscious, like, what the F is wrong with you? Your child is dead. Like, how dare you smile or feel happy? And, and felt a little bit guilty for a moment. But just as quickly, the next thought popped into my head. And it was like, well, okay, I felt happy, I smiled, but did it take my grief away? Not even a little bit. 
not even a little bit. So it was kind of this Oprah Winfrey aha moment <laughs> that I realized that, you know, we can carry our grief in one hand and carry our joy, our laughter, our smile, our life, whatever you want to call it in the other hand. And because we have both, they don't cancel each other out. And it really became my permission to live and that I could smile and we could go on vacations and I could have fun, even though I was still carrying this big, heavy suitcase of grief. And how, how long after um, your, your daughter had passed away, did you have this experience? I'm going to say maybe nine months. Wow. And so that's another thing I think people don't think about is that I think for some people when they grieve, any sort of joy or I don't know, whatever the opposite of grief is or that pain, there's a guilt with it or, or think like, how dare I feel joy when I this person uh, who I love has, has left. And, and so I, it's another complication of grief and what makes grief. So, um, I mean, it's omnivorous. It just, it eats everything in sight. It's, it's very, some, it's, it's something. Um, but you also learn through this that, Hey, uh, and I think it's true. I think the worst thing that people can go through is a parent losing a child but that doesn't mean that other people's grief is not also extremely challenging and maybe the worst thing that they have gone through. And so it, it breeds like an empathy in you, uh, which, which is another gift, I guess, kind of the suitcase. Yeah. It's dark and horrible in there, but it's because of love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. You had said too, and I, I think we talked about it, when we think of grief, we think of sadness. So we often feel angry and ashamed uh, and, how often did you think you were, quote, doing your grief wrong as a Oh, were? my gosh. The first four years? Wow. And what does that mean to do it wrong? Like, could you quantify that or you're just like, I'm not doing this right? I would say, and I, I'm just speaking of myself. I don't know if other people do this. I was kind of looking at other people. Um, sadly, there's, there's like, there's like, clubs it's this like club that nobody wants to be a part of right like the grieving mom's club like mm -hmm. there's more than me there's there's more than me and I, so i was meeting people and frankly i was terrified because i was meeting people who were 5 10 15 years out further than me and living this black dark life of grief with zero hope of it ever getting better. And I had to distance myself from that because it was like, I called it the swirling black vortex, you know, where I was horrified of getting pulled into it. And so I, I'm talking in circles here. I feel like as a society, we suck at grief. I mean, we suck at mental health. Yep but we suck more at grief. And society was telling me, I was having friends, family, coworkers, people that love me telling me that I was never going to smile again, that my marriage was over, that my kid was going to be a drug addict and have mental health issues the rest of his life. My life was over. Like People that cared about me were telling me this. This is the message that is out there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
even though inside of me, like at about that nine month mark, I felt a bit of a shift. Like I thought, okay, um, you know, I can carry my joy, happiness, whatever, and I can carry my grief. Um, I, I can, I, okay, I can do this. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I, I can do this with that thought in my mind. But everywhere I turned, and a lot, not all, but a lot of other grieving mothers that I met, that was not the messaging that I was the weirdo. I was, I was told off by a number of grieving mothers. When I was honest and truthful about how I felt, that I could truly go on and live and honor my daughter in a way that made her proud, I was told off. And so guess what? I quit saying out loud and I'd go along with what other people were saying. Yep. Mm. Yep. Yep. This is awful. Yep. Yep. You know, we're going to live the life of darkness. Yep. And then there just came a time when I actually finally did meet other women, other moms who were kind of living in the closet like I was and said, you know, I, I don't think this is serving me well. It's not serving my family well. Um, and that we kind of, you know, created our own little band and we, I finally became brave enough to tell my, my truth. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it, the grief is so weird and we do maybe, as you said, we suck at grief because you're mm -hmm. like, Hey, listen, I'm healing in a sense that I'm able to hold this horrible pain along with moving you know continuing on in my life and finding joy in things and we're we tell ourselves that's not right but of course it, it it that has to be closer to right than than the other one i would think i would hope well I, yeah. I, okay if it's my in my experience i would hope for that to be the case again as you said and everybody grieves differently and absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I certainly don't want anyone to think that that is the only way to grieve. And if they're not there yet, or they disagree that they're doing it wrong. Right, exactly. And that's exactly right. I think in hearing your story, from my perspective, I want to believe that uh, my grief will allow in for other things. But again, sometimes it's, man, grief, grief's a real motherfucker. I, I, I think I told you this on the phone, you know, that the, the um, Emily... Emily Dickinson quote, which is grief is, or hope is a thing with feathers. Well, I say grief is a thing with talons. It just reaches out and tears at anything indiscriminately. It's, it's really something. Um, oh. But you're right. Everybody grieves differently. There's no prescription for it. Uh, and, and that leads us to kind of the, the last major thing that we were going to talk about, which is resilience. And you and I, when we spoke before, you had some really amazing, inspiring things to say about resilience. Um, and so you, you have a podcast yourself. What's your podcast called? It's called Rising Strong, Mental Health and Resilience. And I love, like you, I, I just, I'm fascinated by people's stories. I think we all have one and mm. I think we can all learn so much from one another just in a very organic and real way. But I always try and end my podcast episodes by asking my guests, what do you think resilience is and what makes you resilient? And uh, everybody's answer is a little bit different, of course, but there's just so many good little nuggets that come out of that. Well, I have to ask you, what do you think resilience is and what makes you resilient? 
Well, I'm going to say that I think resilience is not the act of bouncing back because I don't think we'll ever be the same people we were before we've had trauma or any of these struggles. I say it's the act of bouncing forward and figuring out how to carry our trauma, our grief, our crap with us as we build our life around said stuff. What makes me resilient, I think, is that I've learned that this this thing that rattles around in my head that's between my ears, this thing we call our brain, it's actually pretty powerful. It can work against us. It can work for us. Mm. And when I started to look at things a little bit differently and, and use perspective, for example, I was, I was mad. I was pissed off. I was mad as hell when Katie died. She was smart. She just get it, got into nursing school. She was talented. She was kind. She was going to do good things in her life. And I mean, you don't have to look very far to see that there's some really crappy people in this world. And I just remember being so mad, like, why my kid? But take a step back. I've, I've worked at the cancer clinic for 33 years. I'm well aware, well aware that there are many, many, many families who don't get 17 and a half years with their kids. You know, I had 17 and a half healthy happy years where, you know, we, we, Katie had a great life. We had a great family life with her. And for that, I choose gratitude. That's wonderful. And, and perspective is right. I mean, perspective is often something that we need and is rarely there at the moment we need it. It comes and, and it does, it does provide a healing and, and a uh, understanding, but, that's just a wonderful perspective to put on it. So uh, that's a very good answer. Um, so you, you also said that you're somebody who um, always has hope or, or looks for hope in things. Tell me a little more about that, please. You know, I think, and maybe this is with all my oncology experience and all of that, but I think without hope, we've really got nothing. And, you know, like we were saying earlier, I think, Unfortunately, you know, my fairy godmother isn't going to, you know, jump into the picture with her fairy dust and make it all better. My healing is my responsibility. And part of that responsibility is to look for the hope because there's a lot of days that are really dark and really black and really gray and really, frankly, not very hopeful. So sometimes you have to go looking for it. And I think when we look for things, typically we find them right? If we look for all the bad things, mm. we're going to find all the bad things. Mm. But when I started going to look for hope, I actually met the first grieving mom on my journey that made a world of difference. And she was the one who said to me, now keep in mind, she was, you know, four or five years further down the road than me, but she was the one who said to me, you know what? My daughter loved to have fun. She loved to smile. She laughed at everything. She said, I think the best way that I can honor my daughter's life is by being more like her. And she said, I want to give her something amazing to watch. And I will never forget that moment because it really shaped my grief journey and it gave me immense 
hope. I thought if this woman can live this way and talk this way and smile and have fun, so can I. That's, again, very beautiful. Um, and another important message that you have told me when we spoke before is resilience can be very small. It can be very, yes. very small. Uh, I think you said that the nutshell of the resilience message is baby steps. Anything and everything can look like resilience. So I imagine in whatever day it is, it could be a, a very dark day for you now, this year, last year. If you're able to do something small on that day, that's resilience. And that can provide you with just a, well, tell me, what does that provide you with when you're able to see the resilience in in those maybe very small moments? Yeah, like, I think resilience, you know, we think it has to be this big, bold thing. Mm. Resilience might be going from the bed to the couch, right? Resilience might be picking up the phone and calling your therapist. Resilience might be texting your best friend and saying, I'm having a day. Do you have time for coffee? And I think the power in baby steps is that it takes our the pressure off of us to kind of have this preconceived notion of these giant steps forward, like every day is a little bit better than the previous day, every year's better. Because I think when we can propel ourselves forward, even a millimeter, a micro step, is that eventually, you know, we do look behind us to see how far we've come and we go, yeah, I'm doing this. And I think when we realize that every step then, every day that we survive, we've got confidence, right? Mm. I'll never forget um, after Katie's funeral, the minister called our house just to check up, see how we were doing. And I remember saying, well, we've survived 13 days, so I guess we can survive 13 more. And I, I literally just gave a presentation yesterday, so I know the days because I counted them out. But, you know, as of yesterday, we were at 2,952 days. Wow. So I know that I can do another day, probably another week, right? Because I've, I've come this far. That's, that's amazing. And tell us again, so you do speaking, tell us the name of your podcast again and where people can find it. Yeah, it's called Rising Strong, Mental Health and Resilience, and pretty much anywhere podcasts are found, okay. Spotify, Apple, yeah, all, all the usual places. Awesome. And Lisa, as, as we're wrapping up, uh, we covered some very difficult things, but we covered some really inspiring things. And there's so much strength and hope in your story and vulnerability and these are the stories, again, that help all of us get through. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing that. Is there anything else that you want to make sure to say that maybe you didn't get a chance to say during our discussion today to share? I would say to anybody who's listening, no matter what they're going through, don't do what I did. Make sure and speak up. Mm -hmm. I can guarantee you that no matter what you are going through, that there are other people going through the same thing and there is power in that. Yes, exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story and um, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me.
You bet. And I will go ahead and end the show as I do every week. Just a reminder that there is always room for kindness and grace, no matter the situation. There is always room for kindness and grace, and we will see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.